And we're going to get into God's Word together. If you're new here this morning, my name is Brent Smith. I'm one of the leaders here at Christ Central. We're certainly glad that you've joined us this morning. Uh, we're going to continue in 2 Corinthians. We've been in there for a while now, when I've been up here at least. Hello, everyone. Hi, Brent. Hi. Hi. Yep. There we go. All right. Oh, okay. All right. There we go. All right. So we've been in 2 Corinthians for a few months now since the beginning of the year uh, when I've been up here and we're going to continue in 2 Corinthians. And so I want to turn your attention to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. If you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and open there. We looked at the first 10 verses last week and this week we're going to look at verses 11 to 16 to 15, 11 to 15 of 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And I want to talk this morning about the enemies of courage. The enemies of courage. So I'll pray and then we'll jump in. So Father, we're so thankful for Your presence here this morning. We're so thankful that You meet with us as we lift Your praises up to You, as we exalt You. Uh, we're so thankful that it's not just a one-way conversation, but You speak to us. You speak to our hearts. You encourage us. You lift our heads and we praise You for it, Father. We're so thankful for the privilege it is to come as Your body, as Your church, and worship You. We're so thankful for it, Father. Help us not to take it for granted that we get to gather together as a people of God and lift Your name high and worship You and give You the honor and the praise that You deserve. And now as we come to Your Word, uh, we just pray that You continue to speak to us, that Your Spirit would be active, that Your Word would be living. It would be the sharp double-edged sword this morning that pierces us because we want to be changed this morning. We don't want to leave the same as we were when we walked in. We want to be changed as Your Spirit works through Your Word. And so we ask that You would do it this morning, Father, that You'd give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to understand what You want to speak to us. So speak, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning in verse 11. Paul says, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us. Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And He died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for Him who for their sake died and was raised." All right, if you remember last week, we summarized the first 10 verses of chapter 5 and said that Paul was showing us that the consequence of being confident about death is courage for our life. And he set out to answer the question, what happens when a Christian dies? And then he says twice in those verses, so we are of good courage. And so he's pointing us ahead that we can be confident about our death and what happens to us so that now we can be of good courage. And so there's a courage that comes to us in this life to live a certain way 
by grabbing hold of the truth of what happens when we die. And at the very end, we asked the question, courage to live what way? And we saw that Paul was encouraging us to live by faith, not just by sight. Courage to make it our aim to please God. Courage to store up for ourselves treasures in heaven, not just the dollar store trinkets on earth. And we know that every last one of us will one day stand before the judgment seat of Christ to give an account of our lives. And that's how we ended in verse 10. So we are of good courage. No matter what way you slice it, the call to live as a Christian, the call to live as a Christ follower, is a call to live courageously. We need to see that. Do you see that? The call to live as a Christian is a call to live courageously. It's a call to courage. Why? Because it's a call to live differently. It's a call to live radically. It's a call to die to yourself and your interests and your preference and your goals and priorities. And as Jesus said, pick up your cross and follow after Him. So following Jesus doesn't mean we just have a place to go on Sunday mornings where we can sing some songs. It doesn't just mean that we have a group of people who can pray for us when we hit a rough patch. Paul said that for him to live is Christ. To live is Christ. And to die is gain. And so if you're here this morning and to live is not Christ, then dying will not be gain for you. Paul said, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. I saw a quote this week from Don Carson and he said, the New Testament does not offer a lot of encouragement for people who just want enough Christianity to be saved. But sadly, that's where many are at. Just give me enough to be saved. And so we know very little of the courage that Paul speaks of or understand why it's even needed. But as Paul continues on this theme, after giving us reasons to be of good courage and calling us to live courageously in our walk with God, he reminds us in these verses in 11 to 15 that there are enemies to our courage. There are things that stand in our way that seek to tear down our courage and paralyze us in our stepping into all that we know God is calling us to. And so in this passage, I just want to point out three of those enemies, these things that, that get in our way for us to live courageously after God. First, I just want to point out three preliminary things that help kind of build the framework uh, that we just need to keep in our mind as we move forward, and then we'll get into the three uh, enemies to our courage. All right, so that's how the morning is going to go. So first, we need to know that there are enemies to our courage. We know this, even without me saying it. We know that there are enemies to our courage because everyone here is not as courageous as we would like to be, right? Everyone here is not as courageous as we would like. Not many say, I just wish I was a bit more fearful. I just wish I could grow a bit in my timidity, right? Not many say that. Nobody does those describe me in one word posts on Facebook and then scrolls through, boys, I hope somebody put coward. Let me just see, <laughs> did anyone? Yes, coward, woo! No, we all want to be more courageous than we are. 
And so I'm not bringing any great revelation here. We know that there are enemies to our courage. Hopefully a little more clarity on the topic, but there's nothing really new here. We know that there are things that work against us living courageously after God. Second, we need to recognize that behind these enemies of courage, we have an enemy. Behind these enemies of courage, we have an enemy. It's important not to think just in worldly terms and conditions or in vagueness. Thinking biblically about our lives, we know that we have an enemy, that Satan is against us in our following after God. The Bible says he is a thief who comes to rob and kill and destroy. Paul says in Ephesians 6 that he wrestles against us. He fires flaming darts at us. He schemes against us. And one of his main focuses is to remove our courage. C.S. Lewis in his book, The Screwtape Letters, which is a novel of sorts that kind of outlines a conversation between uh, one demon and his, and his understudy uh, in it. He says, He, meaning God, sees as well as you do that courage is not simply one of the virtues, but the form of every virtue at the testing point, which means at the point of highest reality. A chastity or honesty or mercy which yields to danger will be chaste or honest or merciful only on conditions. Pilate was merciful till it became risky. And so we need to see the importance of courage, not just as another virtue in our following God, but every virtue at the testing point. Pilate was merciful till it became risky. And Paul reminded us back in chapter 2 of 2 Corinthians that we would not be outwitted by Satan for we are not ignorant of his designs. We are not ignorant of his schemes. He has designs against us, especially against our courage in following God. So when I talk about our enemies of courage, we can't just think in vague ideas and concepts. We need to be very aware that in our courageous pursuit of God, we have a very real and present enemy who yesterday, today, and until Jesus returns is prowling around like a lion looking for a life to devour. So as you walk in your lunchroom at work, he's prowling. As you're in your classroom, he's prowling. When you're at home, he's prowling. That doesn't mean we're trembling in fear because John says, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. But it means we cannot be ignorant of his schemes. We cannot be ignorant of his designs against us. Thirdly, we need to understand the fear of the Lord. So remember back in verse 10 last week, the most uncomfortable part that we read is when Paul grabs us by the chin and points us to the judgment seat of Christ and says everyone is going to give an account before him. That's uncomfortable to read. We didn't like that part. It's a sobering thing for sure. It forces us to think about how we live our lives, what we cherish, what we value, how we spend our money, how we spend our time, what words come out of our mouth. So now in verse 11, Paul links that with knowing the fear of the Lord. He says in verse 11, therefore, knowing 
the fear of the Lord. So you're going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ, therefore knowing the fear of the Lord. It's like even as Paul voiced it, he feels that weight of standing before Christ and giving account of his life as an apostle. You don't see many chalkboard, Pinterest things with James 3.1 written on them. Not many of you should become teachers for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Paul feels the weight of that. I feel the weight of that. Paul feels that weight. He has a fear of God in his life. And so before we go any further, I think it's good to bring some clarity on what that means. We need to take a minute and get clear what is meant by the fear of God. It's all through the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament, when we see the emphasis in God's Word on it. And here in this passage, it's crucial crucial that we know what it means. He's saying, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, and then everything else comes after that. So we need to get straight what is meant by the fear of the Lord. So there are many verses in the Bible that deal with fear. 1 John 4.18 says, There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. Many of us know that verse, perfect love drives out fear. At the same time though, Proverbs 14.26 says, Whoever fears the Lord has a secure fortress. Whoever fears the Lord has a secure fortress. And Psalm 112.1 says, How joyful are those who fear the Lord. So we've got security in the fear of the Lord. We've got joy in the fear of the Lord. And so we need to get straight what, what, this, is, what this means. What does it mean when Paul says, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord. We can't stay here long, but perhaps this illustration will help. Knowing the fear of the Lord. So imagine you and I are climbing along the side of the mountain, side of a mountain, not like Green Hill Lake Mountain, but like a real mountain, <laughs> like the Himalayas or the Alps, something a bit more impressive than Green Hill, just a tad. So you and I are climbing along the side of the Himalayas, let's say, we're thousands of feet up, the ledge is small, and we look out on the horizon and we see an absolutely terrifying storm coming towards us. We see the clouds beginning to billow. The breeze starts to pick up on our face. We see flashes of lightning. We feel unbelievably vulnerable, don't we? On the side of this little cliff face. Unbelievably vulnerable. Fear grips our heart, doesn't it? Everyone is afraid in that setting as we're there on this tiny ledge and we look we see this storm coming. And so we pick up our pace. We're desperate now. We're trying to get to safety, right? So we're scuttling along the side of this cliff face. Finally, we come to like a crevice or a cave that we can get ourselves in. And we just get in as the storm breaks upon the side of the mountain. At that moment, all the life-threatening fear is removed, isn't it? We're safe in that crevice. We're tucked away in that cave. 
we know we're completely safe. But not all the fear is gone, is it? Not all the fear is gone. There is still very much an awe and a wonder and respect for the majesty and the power of the storm. There still remains a fear that this storm is not to be trifled with. In a way, this is what Jesus did for us on the cross. In the hymn, Rock of Ages, it says, Rock of Ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in Thee. Be of sin the double cure, save from wrath, and make me pure. So in our sin, we had all the judgment and wrath and justice and holiness and power of God bearing down on us. But Jesus, in taking our sin on the cross, dying in our place, He gives us shelter and He gives us safety. We hide ourselves in Him. He provides a place where we can enjoy the majesty of God with an awestruck fear and trembling but without a cowering, panicking fear. And so do you know that fear of God this morning? Do you know that fear of God? Do you see the absolute holiness and majesty and power of God? Do you see God not as one to be trifled with? And do you see the absolute safety that Jesus provides as He takes on the wrath of God on the cross for you. Is our mind blown this morning that a holy God looks at you and I, sinful as we are, and says, come into my presence. Come right in. Come right in to my presence. I want to pour my love out on you. I want to fill you with my fullness. And just so we're clear, this isn't a one-time thing. I've adopted you. You're my son. You're my daughter. I've made you my own. Do you know the fear of God this morning? Or is God to you just trite, kind of like a plastic magic eight ball that has no value, it demands no respect, or causes no wonder and awe, it has no feelings towards you. And sure, you can shake it from time to time and get some advice, but that advice is easily ignored and has no consequences on your life. And it can be then tossed back on the shelf. Church, that's not who God is. That's not who God is. Make no mistake, God is more gracious and merciful and loving than we can even begin to comprehend. And we have a freedom and we enjoy His grace, but also our God is a consuming fire which only works to make His love and His grace and His mercy more majestic for us. The fear of the Lord. Remember in Mark chapter 4, the disciples are losing their minds with fear as the storm breaks upon them when they're in the boat. They wake Jesus up. He talks to the storm like you and I would talk to a small child. Peace, be still. And the storm goes calm. And then what's it say? They're filled with fear. 
who is this man that even the wind and waves obey him? So in one sense, fear is removed when we come to Jesus. In another sense, it's replaced by a fear of who he is and the power that he has. Who is this man that even the wind and waves obey him? If you were there in that time, there is nowhere else you would want to be than in that boat. In that boat, there is joy. In that boat, there is peace. In that boat, there is safety. And yet they tremble at the sight of Jesus and what He has just done. That's the fear of the Lord. So hold these things in our mind as we now look at the enemies of courage in our life. So Paul has just called us to live a courageous life. He's called us to give of ourselves, to see life at work in those around us. He showed us that even though we are jars of clay with weakness upon weakness upon weakness, that that does not limit God's call on our lives or obstruct God's power working through us. That's the courageous call that he's placed on us over the last few verses. And now we courageously make it our aim to please God, fixing our eyes on eternity. And so Paul wants us to see the enemies that rise up in front of that call. Alright? So what are the enemies that work against living that way? Look at what he says in verse 11. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. We persuade others. So number one, the number one enemy that comes in our way, not number one in rank, just number one in my notes and Paul's verses. I didn't want you to get confused by that. <clears throat> We're absorbed with ourselves. Paul says, therefore, knowing the fear of Lord, fear of the Lord, we persuade others. We persuade others. So we look ahead to the judgment seat of Christ. We know the fear of the Lord. And it can be very easy in that situation to become very self absorbed and turn in inward and constantly be analyzing our lives. We can become so focused on dealing with our own life that we don't have the time, the energy, the concern to get involved in the struggle of others. But notice Paul's agenda is outward. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. And sure, it's good to take stock of our life. We should we should do that, but not at the cost of others. Paul lived with a radical, other-oriented agenda. His life was a life of giving of himself. But so often we hear God calling us to step out in courage and give of ourselves for the good of others, but the enemy comes and says, well, what about you? What about all the things you need to sort out? And look at the shape you're in. You need somebody to serve you. Why aren't they serving you? Well, they must not care about you. So why in the world are you going to serve people who don't even care about you? We hear it over and over in the church. Well, I've got to take care of myself. I've got to look after me first. And don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that we don't need to look after ourselves. But when it comes at the cost of serving others, then it becomes an enemy to our courage. 
our struggles and our suffering can make it very difficult to think of others. We have no energy or thought for anything but our own needs. And over time, our trials can swell into a kind of pride and makes us feel superior to others who have not had to go through the same deep suffering that we have. Which only leads us to becoming more and more focused on ourselves. Why would I serve others when they have already had such a better life than mine? But Paul says, knowing these things, persuade others. Look outward. Persuade others. Think about these things. Allow the weight of them to bear down on your life, your time, your priorities, and then turn your attention to others. Look outward. Go to people and persuade them. I'm sure there's an evangelistic application to this, but I think Paul has in mind our great need within the church to encourage one another. To encourage one another. Because right now, you and I know people in our lives who've grown cold to the things of God. You and I know people who are wandering away from the truth of the Gospel. You can think about them right now. You have names going through your head. Whether they be sons and daughters or brothers and sisters, parents, close friends, people that you've served with in the past. They once had a fire in their hearts for God, but they've become indifferent and their hearts have grown cold and hard. Maybe they've stopped coming on a Sunday morning. Maybe you haven't seen them in life group for weeks or months. Maybe you look at the choices that they're making and the path they're walking down and you're becoming concerned. And Paul is saying, go to them. Persuade them. Remind them of who God is. Remind them of eternity. These things I've been talking to you about, the weight of glory, the reality of standing before Christ, walking by faith, encourage them in these things. Pray for them. Make yourself available to them. Serve them. Give of yourselves for them. Don't just live for yourselves, but remind them that Christ died so that they might no longer live for themselves, but for the One who for their sake died and rose again. Go to them. Persuade them. As Barb mentioned last week at the end of, of our meeting, it really comes down to allowing ourselves to get tangled up in other people's lives. Allowing ourselves to get tangled up in other people's lives. And if we understand the fear of the Lord, then how can we do anything else? James 5, 19-20 says, If anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings them back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. What would it be like to be involved in a church where that is played out? Where you know that as you begin to wander, as your heart begins to grow cold to the things of God, and it happens to all of us, that you know there's going to be a hand on your shoulder 
that turns you around from that path you're walking down, reminds you of truth, brings you back with a loving persuasion. Being so caught up in ourselves can become an enemy to living courageously for God. Let's keep going. At the end of verse 11, Paul says, But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. Verse 12, For we are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. So Paul is saying, look, I don't need to justify myself before God. He knows me. I don't even need to justify myself before you Corinthians because you know in your conscience what I'm all about. And then he compares himself to these false teachers in Corinth that we've been talking about through the series. I'm not like these false teachers who just boast about outward appearances, the flash and the show. No, no, no. It's all about the heart. It's all about the heart. And then look what he says in verse 13. He says, For we, if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. The second enemy we have to living courageously for God is our great need to be approved by others. In the way Paul lived his life, the way he went about his apostolic ministry, which was so radically different from these false teachers in Corinth, Paul opened himself up to ridicule, to accusations that he was out of his mind. He was beside himself, but he couldn't care less. He couldn't care less. Maybe it was his unbridled passion for Jesus, his tireless work, his enduring of extreme physical and emotional abuse to spread the Gospel, Maybe it was his life in the Spirit, his dreams, his visions. Paul's passion for Jesus made him pull away from the pack, let's say. It made him pull away from the pack. And from what I've seen in my life, the surest way to be ridiculed and have your sanity called into question is begin to take your Christianity more seriously than those around you. Especially... For you students, if you begin to show passion, show conviction, if you begin to separate from the pack, you'll begin to hear it, mostly from your Christian friends. Whoa, take it easy there. Whoa, you're getting a little carried away. Why would you say that? And I love Jesus just as much as you, but you need to take it easy. You need to take it easy. And what's all this talk about tongues and prophecy and healing? You're sounding a little bit cuckoo. In Acts 26, when Paul stood on trial before King Agrippa, he gives his defense, which includes things like hearing the audible voice of Jesus, visions from heaven, the reality of Satan, almost being killed for preaching, prophecy, God's protection, and after a while, Festus can't take it anymore. And he says, Paul, you're crazy. All your great learning has driven you mad. You are insane. 
But here Paul says if he's considered out of his mind, that's between him and God. If he's considered rational and wise, then that is for the benefit of those he's serving. It makes no difference to him what others think. It makes no difference to him. His only concern was the glory of God and the spiritual well-being of other believers. And as long as those two things were happening, then let them call him insane. Let them mock. Let them say what they want. Maybe they call him crazy, drag his name through the mud. It made no difference. Maybe they call him wise and praise his servanthood, his work ethic, his good, his good morals. It made no difference. In a culture of appearance and self-promotion and likes and retweets and filters on our photographs, we need to let these words of Paul sink in. What weighs more heavy on our hearts as we go about our day? That we might win the approval of others or that God gets glory from our life? And if God is getting glory from our lives, what difference does it make what others think? One Puritan writer said, At the end, we will not only have the resurrection of our bodies, but the resurrection of our reputation as well. Have you thought about that? You will not only have the resurrection of your bodies, but you'll have the resurrection of your reputation as well. Those who mock you now, the longest they will mock you is your whole life here on earth. Because when Jesus returns, it says that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is King of kings and Lord of lords. And there will be a resurrection of your reputation at that moment. It will all come out in the wash, as we say. A few weeks ago, Jackie Saunders asked us a question in one of our meetings. What would it look like for us to live without fear? What would it look like for us to live without fear? fear and let me bring it in a little tighter and ask you what would you do for God if you knew everyone would think you were awesome for doing it what would you do for God if you knew that everyone would think you were awesome for doing it if you knew that your neighbor would be like thanks so much for telling me about Jesus you're the most amazing woman I've ever met you have to be the coolest person that ever lived. And then they get out their phone and they're like, my cool neighbor just told me about Jesus. Hashtag you have to meet her. And then your phone is going boop, 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 boop. If everyone thought you were awesome, what would you do for God? Would you go evangelize? Would you go tell her about Jesus if you knew that would be the response? If you knew that would happen, would you share the gospel with them? To live courageously for God, we need to let the truth sink deep in our hearts that our value does not hang on the approval of others. We need to let the truth sink deep in our hearts that our value does not hang on the approval of others. What would we do? If we lived a life like Paul, where he says, it doesn't matter if you think I'm crazy, then that's between me and God. It doesn't matter if you think I'm the best, that's just for your benefit. 
last but certainly not least, the third enemy to living courageously that Paul shows us here in these verses is an apathy towards God's love. Because when we look at Paul's life in verse 14, he says, for the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And He died for all, that those who might live no longer live for themselves, but for Him who for their sake died and was raised. When you look at the life of Paul, we see a man who had a drive. He had a seemingly endless supply of energy. He seemed to have an iron will in the face of persecution. When you look at the things he went through, the things he endured, the sacrifice to see the Gospel spread, it's clear that something drove him forward. Something motivated his life. And the power, the motivator in Paul's life was love. Not just some ambiguous, mystical love in general terms, but the love of Christ. The love of Christ controlled him the love of christ controlled him think about that sentence for a second don't just run past verse 14 but the love of christ controls us the love of christ controls us sam storm says as paul reflects on the unfathomable i can't even say it unfathomable oh sorry on the unbelievable sacrifice, <laughs> as Paul reflects on the unbelievable sacrifice Christ made for sinners such as himself, he is gripped yet again with the breadth and length and height and depth of divine affection for hell-deserving transgressors. This, then, is the single greatest reality that shapes and sustains and empowers his every breath, every decision, and every sacrifice he made. The love of Christ controlled him. The love of Christ controlled him. It literally means that he was hemmed in. He was hemmed in. I get the picture of like driving in those big cities where you turn onto a street and you've got like the concrete walls on each side, right? And traffic's moving pretty quick. You can't veer to the left. You can't veer to the right. And there's no way that you can go backwards because you're just swept in to the moving traffic. Paul says it was the transforming power. The transforming love of God was a power pushing him forward in his life. That's the picture Paul is giving us. I'm pushed forward by the transforming power of knowing that Jesus loved me to such an extent that He willingly gave His life in my place on the cross. To live courageously simply means to not live for ourselves, but to live for Jesus. He died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for Him. And it doesn't stop there. Aren't we glad it doesn't stop there? Not to live for ourselves, but for Him who did what? Who died and rose again for our sake. Who died and rose again for our sake. It's impossible then to live for Jesus and not for ourselves, 
without knowing the love of Jesus in our lives. This was the single greatest motivator. This was the driving force behind his love, life was the love of Christ. Christ's love controlled him. Does Christ's love control us this morning? Does Christ's love impel us? Or have we grown cold to it? Is there an apathy in our hearts when we think about what Jesus has done for us? When you think about the cross, when you sing songs about Jesus' death and resurrection, does it still stir you? When we sing words like, and as he stands in victory, sin's curse has lost its grip on me, for I am his and he is mine, bought with the precious blood of Christ. Where's your heart when we're singing those songs? Does it stir you? God's love for you hasn't faded. He loved you when you were his enemy. He loved you when you were an orphan. It's impossible for him to love you less now that you're his child. His love for you is unfading. His love for you is steadfast. His love for you is unchanging because it's all tied up in his love for Jesus. You're hidden in Christ. And so his love for you does not waver. We need to see that. We need to get hold of that. That with the same love that the Father loves the Son, He loves you. With the same love that the Father loves the Son, Jesus Christ, He loves Andy Lemon. We need to get a hold of that. Paul got a hold of that and that's why it was a driving force in his life. Because he knew that even if he stood before Jesus at the throne, even as he stood before Jesus and he was made a new creation, all sin was removed. He was given a glorious resurrected body as he stood in the very presence of Jesus. And he knew the unbelievable love that would be poured out on him in that state. That same love was for Paul today. Do you see that? When you stand before Jesus in the throne room and you are made perfect, when you are made like Jesus, God does not love you anymore at that moment. Because He loves you the same today. His love for you is unchanging. His love for you is unchanging changing your heart might have grown callous to it your heart might be apathetic toward it this morning but jesus love has not diminished jesus love has not diminished paul didn't have some magic formula he was a man who understood the love of jesus and he let it invade every area of his life a man who knew and experienced and lived in the depth of that love. He understood who he was. He understood the depth of God's love for him.
does the love of God exert a similar power in our lives? Does the love of God exert a similar power in our lives? I read a story about a young man in the 1800s and he was just a teenager and he lived in in London and he knew Christ and he sung in the church's choir and he did all the things. But as he was in his teenage years, he went through a time when he questioned his faith and on one particular night, uh, a winter's night cold, he was walking across the bridge in London and he began to have thoughts of taking his own life. He was extremely lonely, depressed, and he thought of taking his own life. And as he stood on that bridge, in that moment, God's love filled his heart. He had an experience of the love of God. Not just words on a page, but as Paul says, the Holy Spirit pours the Father's love into our heart. And it changed his whole life. He went on to become an open-air preacher and, a, and seeing God's kingdom in his business in London. And he also wrote a lot of hymns. And one of the hymns he wrote shortly after that experience on the bridge is called, Oh, the Deep, Deep Love of Jesus. And it says, Oh, the Deep, Deep Love of Jesus, vast, unmeasured, boundless, free, rolling as a mighty ocean, in its fullness over me. Underneath me, all around me, is the current of thy love, leading onward, leading homeward to thy glorious rest above. That's the love of Jesus. And it's not just something we sit in and enjoy. It moves us forward into all that God has called us to. And so when we talk about living courageously for Jesus, when we talk about this life that Paul is laying out for us, let's not get so caught up in ourselves that we ignore the needs and the struggles of the people around us. Let's encourage one another. We're not in this alone. We're not in this alone. And let's not be so concerned with what others might think of us, but let's let God's glory and the well-being of others be our motivating force because we know we'll have a resurrection of our reputation in the end and let's remind ourselves and live in and be empowered by the love of Jesus the love of Jesus in that while we were yet sinners Christ died for us let's pray Jesus, we praise you for your deep, deep love. Vast and unmeasured, boundless and free. And in a way, all those other things just come back to knowing your love. Because as we know your love, it's going to push us to love others. And as we know your love and what you think of us, what others think pale in comparison to that so we have a great desperate need to know your great love for us this morning we pray 
as the hymn says, that it would roll this morning as a mighty ocean in its fullness over us, that it would be underneath us, that it would be all around us, that we'd be caught up in the current of your love, and it would lead us onward and lead us homeward. That's our prayer for us. That's my prayer for this church, that we would know your great love, that we'd know it because your word says it, but we'd also know it because your word says that your Holy Spirit pours it into our hearts. And so this morning, I pray as we fix our eyes on the cross, as we fix our eyes on Jesus, you would do a miracle in our hearts that we'd be transformed, that we'd be softened to your love, that those calluses would be stripped away and there'd be a newness and a rawness that the things that we've just seen as so commonplace, we've been hearing about them since we were little kids, would be fresh again. We pray, Father, pour the Father's love out on us, not just so that we can sit and enjoy it, but so that we can move forward because there's a world that desperately needs to know it as well. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.